Good morning. My name is Will. I am one of the student ministry directors here, and I'm excited to be here. Usually I only get to do this every six months, but this is my second time in a month. So that means, thank you, that means I'm doing something right, or a lot of people are out of town. And I don't want to answer that for myself, nor do I want to know your answer. So every week we pass out the play sheet. Um, we give this to you so new people can understand who we are. And for all of us who are regulars, this becomes so second nature to us. Because this is what life at Rio looks like. Outside of a Sunday morning, we want to be people who explore together, discover together, and grow together. And we explore this faith through Alpha. So if you have big questions about the Christian faith or what life is about, Alpha is a safe place to discuss those. We gather for dinner, a video, and just conversation in the most non-judgmental way possible. And as a church, we truly mean it. You can say whatever you want. And we also want to discover as a church. So if you want to know more about who we are here at Rio, Rio, we have starting point once a month up in the Ingram Center. The next one's on July 21st in between services. And we also want to grow as a church. Sam Cashesmith has been leading spiritual formation um, that started this past summer. It's been a great time to explore deeper um, who God is and our faith. Um, there's not one of those this week. And next week on July 17th, we will have a worship um, night right here in the worship center. So we would love all of you to be here. And lastly, our feature of the week is men's breakfast. Uh, men's breakfast is the best breakfast I have every single month. It's huge. It's well worth the while. And you get to meet um, some great guys in the process. So we'd love to see all the men on July 9th at 730 right across the street in the attic. One of my favorite parts of my job, though, is that I get to travel with some high school students each and every year um, on an international mission trip. And it's the greatest time. And we take these students there for two reasons. One of those reasons is it is a great reminder of living a life of service. For one week straight, we wake up every morning, we do things together in service for others, and it forms in us and in our students a habit of service because it's a learned skill we all need in this life. And the second reason we go on this weekly excur or this yearly excursion um, is, is a little more selfish. Right? It does something inside of our students' hearts. It kicks their faith into hyperspeed, right? It seems like more happens one week when we're out of town than the other 51 weeks combined. Because it's this beautiful thing of variables coming together, right? They put their phones away, and they actually have to sit down and speak to each other, right? You eat every single meal, meal together at a table, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You work together. You play together. You do everything together whether you want to or not. Each and every night we have this time to read the Bible, to, to read the scriptures separately, and then we come together and we get to talk about them. And it's such a privilege. And over the past seven years, we've gone to the country of Haiti and served there, but this year, because of all the unrest in Haiti, we transferred over to the Dominican Republic. And to be honest, it was our first time there, and it was different. And I personally had a, a rather hard trip internally. Because of the differences I saw. It felt different. It, it looked different. And, and I was just having this huge argument inside of myself all week long. Because when you get to Haiti, it just punches you in the face, the difference in cultures. As soon as you step off the plane, you're in a whole new world. As you get on the school bus and all the windows are down because there's no air, you start to drive out of the airport. The paved roads, you leave behind rather quickly. 
You see the electricity to to these small buildings rigged up by poles that just don't seem seem like they're going to make it. As you drive, most of the roofs you see are from Samaritan's Purse, these blue tarps that they put up that can barely keep any water out. And it just hits you so hard. Well, as in the Dominican, I was having this conversation with myself of, of God, why am I here? Well, what is this team of teenagers doing in this country? Because the culture shift wasn't as dramatic. Right? The Dominican Republic had a little more infrastructure. I saw some nicer cars. Right? There was condos and apartments. There was kids going to school. As we drove in the mornings, it seemed like a city that was bustling with business. Billboards and advertisements were everywhere. And there was just something that I was fighting within myself of, what are we doing? One of those things we do while we're there is we just go into homes and we sit and talk with them. Actually, people, when we show up at the doorstep, they invite us in and we just sit and we chat with them. We find out about their life, what they do, what they do for work, where their kids go to school. Is there any hospitals in the area? And it's nothing too crazy. And each day, those were pretty normal each and every day, each and every visit. And it wasn't until the last day. The last day, the last hour of the day, time was starting to run out. And Madame Wendell, the pastor's wife, who was leading our team to the different houses, said, we're going to go to one more house today. At least I think she said that she spoke Creole and I don't, so something was lost in translation, but I followed her anyways. And I thought, well, you can do this. You've done this all week. Just got one more of these. And she leads us to this home, and and, and it seems like a two-story blue building. It seems like there's different apartments in it. I thought, okay, that's, that's what we've done all week. I can do this. But all of a sudden, she takes a hard left down an alleyway. The alleyway is pretty tight, so our team's walking single file. I'm in the very back, kind of worried about our safety, kind of worried about where we're going. The alleyway's wet, even though it hadn't rained in a while. There's a dog barking at us. There's a smell that hits my nostrils that I can't quite put my finger on. And we descend down stair after stair after stair. And it seems like we're, we've just left society. And we end up at this home. This beautiful woman and her family. The home's made of unfinished concrete block with a metal roof that's just thrown up at a slight tilt to try to keep the rain out. There's tarps underneath the roof to catch what the roof doesn't catch. The room's not even big enough to fit our whole team. She has no chairs to offer us to sit down. And right then and there, whatever God was doing, um, it broke. Because it's easy for me in the world I live in in Fort Lauderdale and, and what I saw in the Dominican to, to not see the suffering that's taking place because I can pretty much avoid it if I try. It's easy to take my same routes, to go down the same roads, to visit the same places, to be with the same groups of people. But God that day put me where I was staring injustice in the face. And when I saw suffering up close, I couldn't avoid it any longer. So I had to think about the questions of what really is justice? What does mercy really look like in this life? 
Because those are two questions that seem easy when I'm sitting on my couch playing mental gymnastics with them. It's easy to keep it on the governmental level and, and to use words like they need to do this better, they should do this, or justice looks like this, mercy should be this. But that day, that was a question for my own soul. It wasn't a question anyone else could answer for me. And so we come today to think about those questions, think about these ideas of justice and mercy. And we're not the first people to talk about these things in 2019, but for all of time, people have discussed and argued and tried to figure out what these two words mean. In the ancient times, philosophers all had their own idea about what justice is. Plato, who wrote The Republic, he saw justice as one of the four pivotal virtues in this life. There was wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. Whatever wasn't wisdom, whatever wasn't courage, whatever wasn't temperance, that is what justice was. For him, it boiled down to this, doing one's own work and not meddling with what isn't one's own. It's a great one-liner to tweet out a coworker. And then we move on to a man named Aristotle. Aristotle was always looking for the golden mean of these virtues, taking the two extremes and finding the cappy middle. For him, proportional equality involves the intermediate position between people unfairly getting less than what they should and unfairly getting more at someone else's expense. And then we move into the Enlightenment where rational thinking comes into play and a man named Immanuel Kant says this about justice. He sees a just action as one where the freedom of our individual wills coexists along the freedom of everyone else in accordance with universal law. Three men, three different definitions of justice. So what about mercy in the ancient world? What did the mercy look like back in the day? On well, ancient times, they saw justice and mercy as polar opposites. You couldn't do justice and mercy at the same time. You had the choice each and every action you did to act justly or act mercifully. Because they saw mercy as having involving suffering. Because in order to be merciful, you need to be in the depths of suffering. And they saw suffering as evil, so, so they tried to stay away from it. Seneca, a Roman philosopher, said this, Mercy should be considered a vice proper to despicable characters. So now we think about mercy and justice. What does it look like in our world today? Not just in the past, but what does it look like for us? One of the major categories of mercy is financial giving. It's an important thing to give money so resources can be obtained for vulnerable groups. In 2017, we as America gave $410 billion to charities. That's amazing. In 2018, we gave away more money than that at $427 billion. Right? We're patting ourselves on the back at this point. But between 2017 and 2018, the staggering statistic that I read on the U.S. Giving Report is this, that individual giving between those two years went down 3.4%, which doesn't seem like a huge number, but that's close to $15 billion. And it was a tough year, right? The stock market had concerns, tax policies changed, so we're all wondering what was going on. But as I thought about that statistic, I thought, man, what, what is it about this? Why did our giving go down so much just in a year's time as a whole collective? I think it's because we see in modern times, we see mercy as charity, right? We use those words interchangeably. And charity has this voluntary association. 
Charity is giving above and beyond our means. When we have it, we will give it. But when we don't have it, charity and mercy are the first things to be cut from our lives. We don't see mercy as absolutely necessary in living this life well. What about our contemporary views of justice? What does justice look like in our modern mindset? Well, Dr. Michael Sandel, a Harvard professor of law, breaks it down into three categories. He shows us three different types of justice in our society today. The first theory on justice is one called maximizing welfare. This view on justice seeks to bring the greatest good to the greatest number of people. The second viewpoint is respecting freedom. This view sees that the most just, ask, the most just action is one that respects the freedom and rights of each and every individual to live as he or she chooses to live. And the last one we see in this modern society is promoting virtue. A viewpoint that sees justice being served when people are acting as they ought to in accordance with morality and virtue. And the truth is, all of these views have merit. But all of these views lead us to a different conclusion about what justice is each and every time they're applied. Because when we apply each one of these in a certain situation, we, we come up with dramatically different results. In 1884, an English ship called the Minonet sank. Four sailors survived after the ship sank. But only three of those four men made it back to England. The way those three men made it back was they killed and ate the fourth member that survived. Because the fourth member of that group was a young cabin boy. He became sick as they waited for help to come. Not only that, but he had no wife, no parents, and no children. So these men make it back to England, the three who survived, and they stand trial because they killed a man. But the English public was upset. They were so mad that these men went on trial because they said that young boy was going to die anyways. That young boy didn't have a wife, didn't have children, didn't have parents. If those three other men died, there would be widows right now. There would be orphans. Because what did the British public believe about what justice is in that moment? If you see justice as the greatest good for the greatest number of people, then what those sailors did that day was just. If you see it as respecting freedom and liberty for the private person, then what they did was unjust. And what that story seeks to show us is this, that we in America, our society, we don't have a consensus definition on what justice is. Each group comes to a different Conclusion about justice because each of them have a different bottom line about what justice is. So now we turn to the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about justice and mercy? Because it speaks a lot about it. The Old Testament comes and gives us two types of justice that we see. The first is after the Hebrew word mishpat. And this is what we call a rectifying justice. This is what we think of when we hear the word justice. A rectifying justice seeks to punish the wrongdoers. It seeks to punish the wrongdoers, but it also seeks to care for the victims of the wrongdoing. It's the classic case of justice in our mind. The second word we see in the Old Testament is tzedekah. We would describe that as this primary justice. In our English Bibles, we see it translated as righteousness. And this whole idea of righteousness is that we're living rightly. We're living justly. It's a social word. 
It's about living right with other people relationally. We usually see the word righteousness when it comes to our relationship with God, that we've been made right in God's eyes because of what Jesus has done. But it's not just that. It's also living right amongst people around you. It's every relationship in your life being just. Because primary justice does this. It seeks to live in a world that rectifying justice is no longer necessary. It seeks a world that if we are all living in right relationship with each and every person we come into contact with, that punishing wrong and caring for the victim of that wrong would not be necessary. And it's easy to see justice as only one or the other of those. But in the Hebrew mind, they were intrinsically melded together. We see this by Job in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says about how he lived his life. Job says this, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the immigrant. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Job in the Old Testament saw that justice was motivated for his care for the vulnerable groups of society. Justice to him was rectifying wrongdoings and living a life that that sought to make none of that necessary. Because primary justice is all about fixing the broken systems that keep the vulnerable vulnerable. And Jesus in the New Testament comes and gives us this, this amazing story that shows us justice, that truly shows us each and every one of these forms of justice. A man comes to Jesus and he, and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the law. What does it say that you have to do? And the man piped up because he knew the answer. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. But the man, just like probably all of us, wanted to find a loophole. He asked, well, Jesus, when you say love your neighbor, who really is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him this story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, and everyone would have known this route, that they would have taken it on the, on the yearly pilgrimage. They would have known that this road was dangerous to travel alone. A lot of victims fell prey taking this route. So the audience would have known that this was stupid to travel down alone. So they weren't shocked when Jesus continues his story, and he says, and he, this Jewish man, fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, saw him. He had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. 
This would have made the audience at the time think about what was going on because the two groups of people who were supposed to understand justice and mercy passed by on the other side. The two who knew how to teach about justice and mercy didn't know how to act justly or mercifully. So when we think about this story, let's apply what we just learned about justice and mercy. What what does justice and mercy look like on this case study? Well, rectifying justice, one that seeks to punish wrongdoing and to care for the victim of others, would find whoever committed that crime and would punish them. It would seek retribution. A primary justice would say, what's going on on that road isn't okay. No longer can we sit back and and watch people be unjustly attacked on that road. So it would seek to fix the broken system that that road implies. And lastly, mercy would be exactly what the Samaritan did. He saw someone in need. He saw someone's physical needs and he addressed them right there in the moment. He didn't wait till he got home and ask his family, is it okay if he goes back? No, he stopped whatever he was doing. He sacrificed his time. He sacrificed his own money. He sacrificed everything for that man that day. I'm sure it was an interruption in his life. I'm sure he didn't want to spend his money or time taking care of a man who in that society was his social enemy. But he saw him in need. He saw him, knew he didn't deserve it, but loved him anyways. So now we come to the point where we have to decide, what's the difference between the cultural view of justice that you and I live in, that you and I play in, that you and I work in, and the biblical view of justice? Well, what, What's the difference between them? Well, Proverbs 28.5 comes to us, and it talks about what does it look like to live skillfully in this life. It says this, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. And this verse, we got to take a step back and think about it. Because I'm sure all of us know people in this life who, who don't know who God is, who don't believe in the cross of Jesus, and they're still living a just and merciful life. Some of them are doing some of the greatest charity we see on this planet for the vulnerable groups of society. And we have to think about that. Because this verse comes to us and says, only those who seek the Lord can understand justice completely. So what does it mean by that? Well, what this verse is saying, if... If we want to find and live a justice and mercy that isn't swayed by society, that isn't because of a cultural trend or a cultural norm, if we want a justice and mercy that lasts throughout the ages, that changes lives, then it has to be based off of something that's unchanging. The bottom line for the justice, for justice and mercy as a Christian, has to be different than the bottom line of our societies. Because as we saw Our society doesn't have a true bottom line for how to act justly. We all have our own individual ideas. But the scripture comes to us and says, the bottom line for Christians to act justly and mercifully is this. It's based off of someone who's unchanging. It's based off of someone who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Because justice and mercy in the Bible is based purely off the nature of who God is. God's nature is so intertwined with justice and mercy that it pours out of him. And this allows us as Christians to have a consensus and a motivation to do justice and mercy in this life. It's not based off social trends or or we try to reason ourselves into it. It's purely based off the fact that it is something that is based on the nature 
of who God is. And it makes justice necessary in each and every one of our lives for the rest of our lives. Because we see the nature of God tell us exactly who he is at the very beginning of creation. Think about how God creates every human being. And I mean every human being, the ones we like, the ones we don't like, the ones we believe in, the ones we don't believe in, the ones we agree with, the ones we disagree with. He creates every human being who ever took a breath on this earth in his image. In every single human being we come into contact with, there is a sacredness to who they are. There is a value to who they are. Not because of what they do, not because of what they're about, but purely because the image of God is in them. Think about it. God's image resides in the poor and the rich, the vulnerable and the powerful, the good and the evil. Yes, it's been distorted, but it's still there. So this changes the way we view people. We don't just look at people because of who they are or what they do, but we look at them and we see that they matter purely because of who God is, purely because of who his image is in them. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, and I think it's beautiful. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Listen to this. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Not only do we see the nature of God at creation, but we see it all throughout the Old Testament. A beautiful picture of who God is, is who he chooses to align himself with. Listen to this verse. Psalm 68, 4-5 says, Sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. The title God chooses, who he chooses to align himself with, are the fatherless and the widow. I want to align myself with the powerful. I want to align myself with the popular. I want to align myself. My title wants to be like them. But listen to who God responds with. He titles himself after the vulnerable, the weak, the needy. And God's character is even shown in Proverbs when he goes even further and he says, what you do the vulnerable, you do to me. In Proverbs 14, 31, he says this, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. I mean, that verse is powerful. But if Proverbs is a book about teaching us how to skillfully live this life here on earth, And that text is telling us it matters how we treat the vulnerable, the needy, the poor. If we want to learn how to honor God in our life, it's as simple as being generous to those. What we do to those groups of people, we do to God. And Jesus continued this whole idea in the New Testament about the nature of God. In the Old Testament, we see it symbolically put on these vulnerable groups. But Jesus comes and shows us what justice and mercy look like in physical form. Think about where Jesus was born. He was born in a feeding trough, not a palace. Jesus' family was poor. Eight days after he was born, he was circumcised. And the temple at the time required a sacrifice when you circumcised your child. The minimum sacrifice was two pigeons. 
Guess what Jesus' family gave as a sacrifice? Just two pigeons. We see Jesus understands it. Think about his public ministry. Who was the type of people that Jesus chose to be around? It was the sick, the leper, the poor, the widow, the social outcast, the blind, the lame, the tax collector. All of these people who were needy for justice and mercy. Jesus didn't change what we know about who God is, but he showed us in physical form what it looks like to live a life of justice and mercy. And when we start to think about this, when, when we see those verses, there's, there's stuff in us that just starts to come up. And if you're anything like me, objections start to come up. I start thinking, hmm, how can I get myself out of this? We start thinking about, that seems difficult. How can I object to what God is saying? As I, as I worked on this this week and as I did my personal worship, those objections started to come up. But I learned that every time I looked at the cross, those objections just diminished. They even crumbled and they became unnecessary. Because the first objection I had in my own heart was, they're undeserving. They got themselves into the position they are in. And what does the cross speak to my heart about that? The cross wasn't created for the deserving. But the cross was given to the undeserving. It wasn't the perfect who needed the cross. It was the imperfect. Jesus comes to us and says, while you were still sinners, I died for you. Jesus comes to us and says, while you were enemies of God, I died for you. It's not the deserving who need justice and mercy, but the undeserving. Objection number two that came up in my heart was, my time, my talent, and my treasure are my own. I've earned them. I deserve them. And I'm going to use them the way I desire to. And then I thought about the message of the cross. It's the exact opposite. Jesus didn't come to this earth. He didn't come down in the form of man and say, this is my body for me. He didn't say, the blood running through my veins is for me only. What did he do? He sacrificed himself on the cross and he says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Jesus gave it all away for us. Objection number three that I had was they might abuse it. And the truth is, they really might. But how much more true could Jesus have said that while he was on the cross? Because his sacrifice was far greater than my sacrifice. And if I'm honest with myself, I abuse that grace and mercy each and every day. Jesus, as he hung on that cross, knew for generation after generation, people would look at his cross and turn away and abuse it. Jesus knew that the sinning wouldn't stop because he sacrificed himself. But what does he do for each and every one of us after we mess up? He invites us back into the fold. He invites us back into his family. Even when we don't deserve it. Even when we don't understand it. Even when we don't want it. So what have all of us right here in this room looked at the nature of God and who Christ is and we would give much, we would give often, and we would give freely in order for justice and mercy to reign right here in this city. What would Fort Lauderdale look like if the small population in here took the nature of God to heart? It would change this city that we live in. And I only know that because throughout history, we've seen justice and mercy change societies. 
We look in Acts 2 at the early church, the people who saw Jesus on the cross, and it says this about them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. For these men who saw Jesus on the cross, the worship that they performed was intrinsically together with what justice and mercy was in their daily life. Think about how that verse ends. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I can promise you one of the biggest reasons where they saw how those people were living. They saw that they had all things in common, that they weren't being forced. This isn't a socialism that's being forced on them. Out of their heart, after seeing Jesus on the cross, they looked at the needs around them and they said, we must meet them. And it didn't stop just with the early church and scriptures, but we see as the church grows in the first, second, third, fourth centuries, we see this theme continue. Because what we see as the early church comes is that justice and mercy looked entirely different than the societies they lived in. And we see that that was a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because the Christian church stood out against the ancient Greco-Roman culture like it was black and white. Because the Greco-Roman society had a major issue when it came to their treatment of infants. Infanticide and child abandonment were common practices in the ancient Greco-Roman society. And the church at that time did something about it. They did something on the justice end, and they sought for these practices to be stopped. And it took them hundreds of years, but eventually in the fourth century, infanticide and child abandonment were cut off by the emperor of the time. But while they waited for that justice to come, they showed mercy. They took these children that were being abandoned into their very own homes. They sacrificed their life for these children because they believed in justice and mercy so much. A woman named Aphra of Augsburg in the third century was one of these Christians. She worked her early life as a prostitute, but then she became a Christian. And after her conversion, her whole life changed. Not just what she did, but who she was. It says this about her. She, being Aphra, developed a ministry to abandoned children of prisoners, thieves, smugglers, pirates, and runaway slaves. Because Aphra saw her righteousness that she earned from the cross as having an effect on how she lived in her city. She took upon the needs of others as the needs for herself. Not only in that day did they have trouble with infants, but they also had no concern for the sick and the dying. A plague came to Alexandria in 250 AD, right? A plague took the city by storm. And Dionysus, the bishop at the time, gives us two quotes. One, he tells us about what society did during that time. And the other, he tells us about what the church looked like. He says this of society. They thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept aloof even from their dearest friends and cast out the sufferers out upon the public roads half dead and left them unburied and treated them with utter contempt when they died. 
Now Dionysus, the same bishop at the time, said this about the church. Very many of our brethren, while in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness, did not spare themselves, but kept each other and visited the sick without the thought of their own peril. And they ministered to them assiduously and treated them for their healing in Christ. They died from time to time most joyfully, drawing upon themselves their neighbor's diseases and willingly taking over their own persons the burden of the sufferings of those around them. The only reason you run towards a plague and not away from it is what the cross of Christ teaches us about what justice and mercy is. The last night in the Dominican Republic with our students, we have a big debrief to talk about the whole week. And we leave them with a couple questions. And one of the questions we ask them is this. How can you live in Fort Lauderdale like you did here this week? What changes about your life now having experienced what you did? And I have to answer because I'm a part of the group. And for me, I realize personally that I like the idea of justice. I like theories of justice. I like to argue about it on, on, on a big realm. I like to say they should do this better or this group of people should do this better. But I was convicted that my personal life doesn't care about justice or mercy. That in my everyday rhythm of life, I don't even come across the groups that the Old Testament talks about. That Jesus came across. In my everyday life, in my everyday rhythm, I don't come across the poor or the vulnerable or the widow or the orphan. And I had to think, Will... When you see the cross, how could you not? I was missing my response to the cross of Christ in my life because he showed me justice and mercy, and I have not given that to my neighbor. So we've talked about what justice and mercy is in a definition. We've talked about what it looked like in the Old Testament and the nature of God. We've talked about how Jesus practiced it in his public ministry. We've seen the early church and their ideas on justice. We've seen the later church and their ideas of justice. But the question for you and I this morning is this. How are each of us going to do justice and mercy right here in Fort Lauderdale? Because what a beautiful vision it would be for our city of Fort Lauderdale to see the church And not know what we're against. But better yet, know what we are for. And what we're for is for justice and mercy. Think about what people in our workplace would see. Think about what our neighbors would see. What if the church came together and instead of just this Sunday morning activity, but we started practicing justice and mercy in our everyday lives. It would change our city. People would come day after day and understand who the Lord is because of what we do in our lives. And if you're anything like me, after that, I was like, I don't really know where to start. And our church has a ton of great ministries that that help us step into this idea of justice and mercy. The first is Love Bags. It meets on Tuesday nights. It's a mercy ministry to the homeless. No questions asked. Come and get a meal. 
But then on the other hand, we work alongside Hope South Florida trying to eradicate homelessness in our city to try to fix the broken systems. We also have Rio House, which is a home for single women and their children who are formerly homeless. And we have care teams that come around these women as they're fighting to put their life back together. And we care for them and we love them and we give them all the support that they need in order to change things. We also have the Four Kids Family Advocacy Ministry. You join a team and it comes alongside foster families in our church that care and support them because that is such a sacrificial gift to this world, what they are doing. And they deserve to be supported. And lastly, there's Trees of Hope, which a woman in our congregation runs. It's this ministry that seeks to bring healing to those who have been sexually abused. But not only that, their team is working to eradicate sexual abuse, but by talking about prevention methods and how to see it and how to stop it. So if you're anything like me, check out our website for, for more info about those things. Because the truth is, Justice and mercy can't just stay in the theoretical sense for those of us who believe in the cross. It has to become something that's personal. It has to be something that is lived out in our daily life. I'm going to pray for us, and then Matt's going to come up and lead us in a time of reflection. Heavenly Father, Lord, and Lord, give us grace after this, Jesus. Lord, this tough topic that we're not necessarily good at, that we don't necessarily like to talk about. Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would come and it would meet us and it would care for us and it would love us, God, but it would also convict us. Lord, that you would show us areas of our life that need to be given back to you, Lord. That we would see you as a God who loves these vulnerable groups in society, Lord, and that would change the way we live. It would change the way we work. It would change everything about how we organize our life. Lord, we just thank you for your justice and mercy, Lord, that you gave it to us who are undeserving. God, now, now let, us, let us live that out in our very own lives. Jesus, and I pray. Amen.